You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. on Radio Bravo, 101 and more, Brave New Radio. Here I am, your professor, David Kirk Philp, along with your doctor, Esteban. Marconi Emeritus. Yes, he is the Emeritus of the Americas, Marconi, and Ah. we're here live from our homes here in the wonderful states of United, and we're here today with uh, Christine Welsh, who is getting her MBA, virtually has her MBA in Music and Entertainment Industry Management, from the University of William Patterson. Christine, great to have you say hello. Hello. She's so good, she's so good with that. And then uh, with us as well is Michael Canizaro, who plays the drums, slaps the skins. Hello, Michael. Hey guys, good to be here. Yeah, I bet it is. And his, uh, his buddy, <laughs> Jeff Butter- Buttermark, manager is going to be on shortly as well. We want to remind everybody, go to musicbiz101wp.com, sign up for that newsletter. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at MusicBiz101WP. And you'll listen to this iTunes SoundCloud on the podcast. Most of you will be listening to the podcast. Do you agree with everything I've said so far, Marconi? Yes, I do, but we should say thanks. Why don't we say thanks? I see no reason not to. So let us give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews. Three Doors Down, St. Vincent and Kiss, there's only one place. There's one place. There's only solo uno place to go. For your advanced business management, go to VB. Did you say hyphen? (laughs) There you go. Hyphen CPA.com when you're ready. We also want to give thanks to the just about going to retire herself, Christine. Oi. They a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped professionals from all over the world manage their investments, plan out for their retirement, and I bet she's planning out for her retirement as well. So when somebody you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, think about the Forefront, F-O-U-R, Front Group, and go to christine.oy at forefront.com. And leave the last oy off for savings. And you may want to leave Christine off because she's, as you say, Dr. Stemon, she's retiring. Yes, she's going to be a consultant, but she is retiring, so I, I doubt she's looking for new clients. However, I'm sure Forefront is. Okay. And I bet if the client had enough money, many millions of dollars, I'm sure she would come out of retirement to help that client, because why would you not? Sure. 
Sweet, thank you for agreeing with me. And we should remind everybody that we are from the Music Biz program at the University of William Patterson, William Patterson University, formerly the college, formerly Patterson Teachers College in the 1920s. And it is one of the best, has one of the best music business programs in all the world, according to a fellow named Bill Board. Right. Zero, four out of six years, rock and roll, right, Dr. Esteban? It's all because of you? No, it's because of you, I'm sure, my colleague. Uh, that is right. Michael, Dr. Yes, Esteban Marconi, who is on either your right or your left as we do this over Zoom, has led our program for 36 years, and he's ending his reign as Lord of the Program in oh, 13 days. Yes. Congratulations, Doc. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That's yes. a long run. That's a long run, my friend. More than most people in the music business. That's I was going to stay five years. That was it. <laughs> yeah, we all are. That's right. <laughs> and, and he played trumpet. He was a recording artist. He was in a band. He was in a, uh, they were signed um, by, what, uh, what's his name? John Hammond, the legendary okay. A&R guy, John Hammond, and Clive, wow. Clive Davis years at CBS. So That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right on. That's it. Right on, right, right so, on. So, Christine, why don't you give us a little background on Michael, and then we'll just dive in head first and close our eyes and go for it. Michael Canizero is a national artist, drummer, who's played with such famous bands as Leonard Skinner, Blackfoot, Van Zam Band, Molly Hatchet, and shortly his manager, Jeff Buttermark, who, is, who owns Rock Management here in New Jersey, a subsidiary of FM Entertainment, will be joining us shortly. How are you today? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. Excited. Good. With all this pandemic stuff, it's, it's finally hopefully gonna break real soon you know get back out there and play i'm itching where are you i am in jersey south jersey oh okay yeah i'm in Voorhees. uh-huh i am i am it's a miserable day so it couldn't be a better day to be on zoom <laughs> <laughs> oh you got we have perfect sun up here yeah no not even close yeah south jersey no, rains every other day and you heard <laughs> about uh Southside johnny and mammoth racetrack absolutely absolutely in five hours <laughs> yeah and he's oh, my friend, bravo. very big gross for him right on very big gross potential. Absolutely. Yeah. Christine, Christine, before you jump in, we should tell Michael, since he's a drummer and he's been with, uh, played with a number of very well-known bands. Michael, one of the most challenging interviews at the get-go we ever had was with a drummer. <laughs> Carl Palmer. Absolutely. MSL like a par, AOP. Absolutely. And he, Marconi, tell the story of what he said when he, when he came in with us. Yeah, he was just, uh, he came in with bike pants on and a bike shirt. He was doing a live out of uh, Nashville. And we were in Nashville. And he comes in, he goes, okay, uh, I'm going to give you five minutes. And if you ask me any questions that you could Google, I'm not going to answer them. And I'll be gone. All right. And that was it. So we had a student like Christine with us, you know. Right. And luckily Dave here is a drummer too. So we started with posture and sure kind of things and warmed him up and after about uh what was it 45 minutes or so yeah know, yeah it wasn't that bad. <laughs> i'm enjoying it and, uh, that five yeah that five minutes stretched out pretty good yeah we us drummers can talk we're quiet behind a drum right. set but he was the most challenging that's right awesome that. that's awesome you know that's but it was really very good i haven't had the pleasure of meeting him yet but he's definitely uh an influence great yeah. player elp i mean you can't call uh, yeah, sure, him. yeah. Sure. that's a histor historical name for sure yeah for sure Okay, right, Christine. Christine. Start with the history now, Christine. Rock and roll, Christine. Yeah. Rock and roll, Christine! <laughs> Woo! Can you tell us more about yourself and how you got started in the music industry? Yeah, um, it's kind of funny. I, long story short, third grade, you know, music used to be a, a big curriculum in school. Uh, unfortunately, it's not really as big today. So you you were you had you you really didn't get to choose your instrument. So 
I'm only five foot eight, so I was a little kid, and I get the French horn. So ah. I was pretty much dragging a small tuba to school, cursing the whole way. I got the viola. Ah, <laughs> giving away my age here. <laughs> and I started tapping constantly in class, and my band teacher was about to have cardiac arrest, and he finally said, "Do you want to play drums?" And I said, "Okay." I had no idea, and um, my uncle gave me my first drum kit, and um, started taking lessons in Long Island Drum Center in Long Island with Dom Famiello. Okay. Dom's a very well-known drummer, right. and uh, then I started teaching there, moved down to Florida. And, you know, I always say this, and me and Christine have, have spoken a few times, that the best musician, the best drummer, the best whatever, is pumping gas somewhere right now because he never met the right guy. And I truly believe that, you know. Um, okay. So I was blessed to have a gentleman by the name of Stet Howland, um, who has played with the likes of Lita Ford, Blackfoot. He's playing with Metal Church right now. He's the drummer. I joined the worst band possible, so I would shine in, in Florida. The worst band ever. He came into this seedy little club in... Uh, on the shore that I was playing at that night and he said what are you doing with this band and I said you're Seth Howland I was kind of taken back at first you know and he said let's come up to the studio our studio tomorrow and uh, it was all born from there you know and, and the studio is actually owned by Ricky Medlock and Al Nally I had no you know I guess growing up I don't know if any of you can equate to this but I knew Leonard Skinner I had no idea what they looked like right. I had no idea I knew Sweet Home Alabama I knew Freebird I knew Three Steps but I never knew what they looked like I had no idea this is Ricky Medlock I just see some long-haired Indian I'm like yeah you don't bro and that's like that's Ricky Medlock I went what like you know everyday guys but I do believe that I do believe that a lot of people get their start from who they know it's really hard to just show your talent and, and have the wrong person see it's not going to do you any good mm-hmm. it's not going to do you any good and then hence comes the management part now you need someone to represent you if you got the good you know um, but yeah that's where I started it's Ted Howland is still one of my best friends I speak to him at least weekly and we chat about metal churches you know what they're going to be doing and overseas and England tour and European tours and it's just uh, the pandemic's put a lot of hold on everybody and I think a lot of people are you know bands are already like a family so we fight constantly and I'm always fighting but this just really adds a lot of tension and not being able to do what you do we're kind of like junkies you know you got to get on your instrument and play you got to have your fix so I find that that's where I started from because of Stead Howland walking into the Dockside Pub which is no longer there on Fort Myers Beach (laughs) able to play with amazing musicians and have a career that's still ongoing so it's who you know man it's who you know absolutely and where were you uh, on Long Island? Uh, I grew up in Wontaw. Uh, I grew up in Valley Stream. Oh, okay. By the, what's that mall? Green Acres Mall. Yep. That. Yeah. I used to go shopping there when I was, a, I'm, I'm a shopaholic too. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, musicians, we got to have, if something matches, I got to have, everything's got to match. I'm kind of weird. (laughs) The show always goes on. But yeah, uh, I grew up in Wontaw. And back then, the music scene was real good, too, when I was growing up. The 80s, um, there was tons of clubs to play at. And and, uh, they would just, you know, they wouldn't. Now, you know, when I was out in Nashville last, living there for a few years, pay to play. You got to pay to play. And then God, you know, God willing, you make your money back at the door. The industry's gotten real tough, man. Mm -hmm. And it's oversaturated. And uh, it's a tough business. But you know what? I wouldn't trade it for the world. I no regrets, man. None. That's so my Michael, story. <laughs> so, Michael, you stepped away from music, the music industry, for a little while, and now you're trying to get back into it. So, can you uh, talk about that process and what do you, what steps are you taking to do that? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, like anybody, being a hired gun, and you know, the, the age of timeless bands is no longer. There's no more Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Beatles. I mean, it's cookie cutter, one and done. If you're lucky, too. So, I had to kind of consider a career that. That would be ongoing that I could do like maybe not part-time but as they say in the industry PRN so I actually became
became a nurse. Huh. And, uh, so, and I'm fully sleeved. So I walk in the room and the patients pretty much go, that's it. don't worry about it, honey. I'm good. Um, and so, you know, I had to I, I get something for, I mean, you know, I want to retire one day and being a hired gun is nothing's guaranteed. You're not guaranteed work. And so eventually, you know, I got the etch again, the junkie in me said, I got to get back out there. I can't do this. So um, most of my endorsements stuck with me. I just got sent 10 symbol endorsements and I am, um, and I, you know, you got to find a manager and that's the, the, the whole key for me. You know, I, I had a manager, Al Nally, for years and Al broke Brownsville Station smoking in the boys' room. That right. was Al's claim to fame. And he was Ricky's manager. So Al was good, but Al was kind of one of those ones that would hold back the reins and wait for the great grand prize. And so for years, we got deals and I got signed multiple times with bands, but they were never like great deals and things. So for me, a manager is, is a representation of the artist. He's your lawyer. He's your best friend. He's your wife. He's everything. I mean, he knows everything about you in and out. And so that's a really difficult choice if you want to, you know, you can't just pick some Joe and say, yeah, he's my manager. I mean, they have to have credentials. They got to have who they know. And that's important. They don't know anybody. You might as well do it yourself, you know? And so I, I met up with Jeff, believe it or not, at a metal church concert in Jersey. Jeff is representing, uh, he has a rock D, which is management. He has just been, uh, and he's now part of FM management out of LA, which is one of the largest. And they are uh, really going after artists now. And they're hungry. They're young. They're all young and they're hungry and they're they're cutting their teeth and Jeff is just I met him through Stat and we bonded you know we, we talked a lot on the phone and, and it's always you know he's always on the phone like right now he's on the phone with uh, uh, over in Europe because the band's going bonkers so that's why he couldn't be here at this moment uh, but he said he's going to call in so but I met him and we talked and you know it's always hard to get together with a manager because he's always on the phone or always busy and always you know you're just part of the pot but Jeff always makes time and that's really important um, so we finally went to lunch and discussed it and we had some common friends Kenny Aronoff other other musician friends and we just uh, he just gave me the contract and said alright let's do this so uh, he's going to represent me and we're going to be flying out to hopefully flying out to Kenny Aronoff's house and do some studio work I mean Kenny's getting up there man he's 66 years old you know he's, he's he wants to kind of back down a little bit uh, so I would be blessed to step in and take some of his sessions believe me um, so, so Kenny is doing that he's because I, I follow him on uh, Instagram he's, he's, he seems like he's as busy as ever he's constant constantly yeah. busy he messaged me the other day on Facebook uh, he remembered that I did the Skinner tracks and he was like great drumming bro I can't wait to see you Jeff is a great guy so there was some verification for me that Jeff's the right guy I mean Kenny Aronoff one of the biggest studio musicians right now in the United States maybe in the world gave me the stamp of approval for Jeff because he's known him for years so that makes me feel good about my choice in Jeff um, but Kenny just got remarried again you know Jeff and him talk on the down low and you know the bottom line is you get tired it's not it's tiring it doesn't matter how old you you know it gets tiring man. 20 years old you're in a you're in a bus and you're in a 12 bunk bus and you're having a ball 40 years old you just want to go to the hotel room and collapse after a 90 minute show you know right. 50 yeah. years old i'm going to be 52 yeah i just want to cut my teeth with session and maybe go out and do some festivals as a hired gun you know we don't know what kenny's going to do but he's definitely overwhelmed with work and so even if he throws me a couple of bones i'm good um it's a great great person to have in your pocket in this industry. great person you know i did a lot of recording in nashville too with some young artists you know again that's oversaturated but it's so crazy the musicians in nashville are so thick you i mean you go to the, the grocery store and I'm I'm walking next to Taylor Swift. No one cares. Right. You know, they're just everyday people. Yeah. Lady Annabellum, who's changing their name now, I guess, was in a parking lot with their boss and they were in the supermarket getting the stuff for the boss. No one cares. Right. It's always you know, been like that in Nashville. Yeah, uh, it's just oversaturated. And some of the best musicians are out on the street playing. Yeah. They're not even in a club because they can't afford to pay to play. Right. You know? So that's where your manager comes in. Your manager gets your gigs, your manager gets your endorsements, your manager backs you, your manager puts you out there, he fluffs you, he does what he has.
has to do to sell you. I feel confident in my choice, for sure. Um, plus, we're around the same age. So it's, you know, uh, Ricky and Al were around the same age, too. So they have the same mindset. It was difficult for me because I was real young and Al was a lot older. So Al had old school thoughts. And I'm coming in this, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, young buck, knowing everything. And he's, you know, this many times he'd tell me, and he had this really weird voice. And he'd say, I'll, I'll take you in the back and we'll mix it up a bit. Yeah, he wanted to fight me. <laughs> um, I, that's a love-hate relationship. That's, that's what happens. But you gotta have full trust in your manager. You have to really choose your path. Well, this is a dog eat dog industry, man. They will chew you up and spit you out in a minute and not even lose a, an inch of sleep. Not a minute of sleep, not a minute. Yeah. They're still making money and you're not. So welcome to music. <laughs> so, so as a, a, a working drummer and somebody who's you know made a career of this aside from you know the, the couple of years, two, three years that you were uh, a nurse, do you have uh, a retirement plan? Have you had health insurance the whole time? Have you? Yeah. I've had my own health insurance. Yep. And now I still do nursing, but I do it PRN, which is when I want. I can choose the days I want to work. So if I want to work Tuesday and Wednesday, I've got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. I can fly out and do a festival and not miss a beat. Plus, I can keep my health insurance through the company that I work for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there's a lot that goes into the plan for the end. That's a big deal because music will end. Your career will end and you've got to be ready for it when it does. If you think it's just going to come to you, it's not. You really have to put in the footwork and plan. Um, you know, I've got IRAs and all that stuff saved up and I got paid great money when I played and so I was smart with it. Sometimes not so smart, but I, you know, another tattoo, another very slow another watch you know well, let me get that for the stage more shoes my closet looks like girls closet sneakers and converse and shoes for the agent you know but the bottom line is when you're a musician and you have any kind of notoriety any kind and you could be like me I, I like to be known as a nobody but I go out and I do what I do and I turn heads that's what I like to do I don't want to be this but every time you walk out the door you got to turn it on it doesn't turn off ever. when you're home you're yourself but when you walk out like when I would go out with Jimmy Van Zandt and we'd fly out to shows we were on point we were like on stage dressed ready to go and we left this house going to the air and people knew it. You guys are banned. You, got, you know, it's all recognition. It's all just living the life. And eventually that life will will stop. And like you said, you have to have a plan. You have to have a retirement plan. You have to have, uh, you know, I mean, my arms, I've been doing this a long time since I'm th- since third grade. So I've got bursitis in both arms and I'm becoming 52 real quick. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's, a, it's a great industry. I don't regret anything. I don't. I, I think it's a good, a good thing for people. I'm, I'm sad that it's not in schools as much. I'm real sad about that. Because it's a great release for kids, you know? I used to get on a drum set and just, if I didn't like what my teacher did and beat the crap out of my drum set, and I felt better, you know? <laughs> I did. That's, that, that's, that's just me, though. I can speak for me, you know? I'm sure well, that's great you bring up... It's, it's good you bring up the physical part because my old history teacher from high school mm-hmm. um, used to write for uh, a magazine. It's called The Aquarian. In Jersey, okay. For a while, it was The Aquarian. Yeah. It was East Coast Rocker. It's The Aquarian again. But in the 80s, he, he wrote, interviewed Van Halen and oh, nice. Owens and all those folks. But he's good friends with Phil Collins. And um, he mentioned uh, Phil Collins at, I'm guessing he's 68. Yeah, he's very close to the seven. Yeah, he's close. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's had many issues. I know Don Henry has had back issues. Um, and, and that's just from the drumming. And, and you yeah. you know, I, as, as a drummer, you know, if you pound, pound, you're going to have besides your fingers and your wrists and your elbows and shoulders, yep. you know, and back. But then Marconi for horn players, what's what's the armature, right? You can lose that with your lips too, right? Yeah, especially if you're a brass player. Sure. A brass player, you got to play every day. Right. A sax player, you can get away with it and so on, but not a brass player. 
anywhere. Right. The woodwinds can get away with it. Right. It all yeah. has to be with building muscles. Yeah. And building muscles all around the, the mouth. Yeah. Well, yes. you know, dr drumming is a, drumming's an awkward position anyway because your yeah. your upper your torso is talked just a little bit the whole show. You know, yeah. you're not really straight, and yeah, it's it's a, it's an awkward position. You, you try to have good posture, but you also want to try to be a rock star. So right. good posture right. is not part of being a rock star. Right. No <laughs> we haven't talked about no we didn't talk about hearing at all either. You know. Yeah. So, oh yeah. God. Yeah. I mean, I started before they had in-ear monitors, and when they came out, I was in heaven. You know, I I could. Right. I mean, I would I would have like six 18s below me banging up the low end, and I'd have four full range cabinets, two on each side of me as my monitors. All right. I mean, I looked like I had Graves' disease. My eyes were bulging out of my head, but. <laughs> Boy, was it a good time. Yeah. And now I realize that a lot of times at this, at this stage of my life, I'm going, huh? What? Like, I really have lost some high-end hearing. So the in-ears are great. You know, I had the custom ones made. And, oh, my goodness, what a difference. It's a, yeah. You get a beautiful yeah. mix. I can get what I want. I don't have to hear, you know. And, and they're pretty noise-canceling, too, when you have them molded to your ears. So you really get to hear what you need to hear, you know. I don't really need a lot of rhythm guitar. I need a lot of bass. And I need a little lead. And I need a vocal to follow. And I'm good. Mm -hmm. Or if I got a track playing, if I'm playing to a track, you know, I got a click in this ear and a track in this ear and the band mixed in. So they really have, they've made the live show different too. You can actually use tracks without hearing, you know, without putting a set of cans on, looking like a weirdo on stage, you know? So uh, yeah, the industry's come a long way, definitely, when it comes to protection. Because back in the day, man, my monitors were so loud. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's a rough business, kids. Okay. <laughs> it's a yeah, rough I, one. Uh, it's been about three years now, I guess. I have two hearing aids now. There you go. But as a brass player, two things occurred. One was that while I was on the road, uh, myself and the trombone player decided to go electric. So we had electric pickups. This in the early 70s. So we had our own amps, too. Oh, my so goodness. It was a great feeling for two reasons. One was that when the guitar player turned up, we would walk over to the amp and we would turn up. So that by the end of the night, everybody was on 20. Absolutely. The yeah. second thing was that because we were electric now, we weren't uh, relegated to just punchlines and so on. Right. With the wah-wah pedal, we could actually sound like a guitar and so on and so forth. Oh, wow. So it was a little bit uh, right around when Miles Davis started doing that kind of thing, but we were the one of the first to really do that. Miles and Davis, there you that go. That was a blessing. Because yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you with this stupid acoustic solo. Right. right. So the guitar player burned half the house down, you know. So <laughs> Those uh, damn guitar players. <laughs> so that made it, that we lost hearing. Yeah. And then second of all, when I got off the road and continued to play, even if you're playing classical, you're sitting right in front of the drums. Yes, you because are. <laughs> your ears are at the drum level. You're, you're loud. The drum is louder than to the drummer for the brass players. Sure. So consequently, all my friends, when they turned like 55 or so, all my brass player friends, forget it. Nobody can hear. So something. I have that to look forward to. Thanks oh, a lot. Please. I appreciate it. Really, really, really do. I know. You know I know. Hearing aids have come a long way too, so I must I must say that. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it's definitely changed. It's really, it's it's definitely for the better. I mean, uh, you got to protect yourself like that physically, you know, you got to stretch out before you play. Um, Mike oh, Cardelloni, yeah. who's with uh, Leonard Skinner right now, you know, uh, he, uh, my goodness, he He's um, he's everywhere. He is everywhere. So, so let me ask both of you, Christine and Michael, a question. Um, how do you guys know each other? Because is it because Christine is also a nurse? Is it because Christine is also a drummer? Or Christine seems to know people in the industry. So I'm curious how you guys know each other. Christine, I'll give you the floor. I've been yapping up a storm. Well, first of all, you know I was a 
drummer. I do now. I do now. And there's three drummers here, so Dr. Montgomery, you're a little yeah. bit. <laughs> uh, well, um, I have a friend down in Texas who I'm still friends with, even though I don't live there anymore. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. And following along with her and everything, I've seen she was going to all these big name concerts and backstage and having all this good time. So when this came up, I said, you know, let me get in touch with him and see if he wants to talk yeah. to us and it turned out that after the first conversation i was like he has so much information and knowledge about somebody who's been through the process you know and somebody who got out and came back in and knows like just talking to him he had so much information about the industry itself so i thought that it would be a good a good interview to have him and his manager on <laughs> and that's a, that's how we know each other we don't know each other in the other profession <laughs> no 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 right. <laughs> no very yeah. yeah yeah it was uh it was a definitely random but you know it's kind of funny I find when you do the right thing things fall in line for you when I thought after starting again and I thought after going back out and getting into the industry at the national level all of a sudden Christine gets a hold and then this happens and, and then Kenny Aronoff and so you know, everything happens when you're when you're doing the right thing things are placed in front of you mm -hmm. um, you know when you're just kind of out there muddling along and, and complaining about how oh we're playing this show again and you don't really you're going to be playing that show forever Yeah, you, know, you just have to have a positive attitude and realize that, you know, I remember sitting in front of labels. I told Christine this story real quick and our manager would have like labels flying and we'd do a showcase for them. And there was times we do it at a club and Studio C in Florida where most of our recordings were done as a giant live room where we would have nationals come in like Sticks and uh, all these bands would come in and Skinner would come in and rehearse there. Cause it's, you could put a arena size monitor rig in there. So you could dial up the monitor rig before you even got out on the road. So it was, it was a really great uh, facility. So, you know, we would set up the band and we'd put lights up in the studio. We'd make it like a real rock scene and these guys would come in with suits and we'd be ready to roll and they'd sit in front of you like this yeah. they wouldn't move their face they would be so flat and we thought we killed it we played two or three songs we're like yeah we got a deal man and they go yeah we're not really interested right and you go what are you an idiot <laughs> and you know and you and you gotta learn and that's where you get that thick skin from uh, a lot of rejection in this business. like i said you gotta keep pressing forward you can't live in that rejection or you'll be right where you are today you know you gotta press forward if you got the goods you can do it you gotta have proper management you have to have proper attitude for sure and you have to have thick skin in this business even managers have to have thick skin we beat our road even our road managers we beat them to death we haze them we you know we have fun with them but our riders were wrong and things you know i mean it, it gets managers take a, a lot of abuse from artists because a lot of artists are weenies and they're you know in swear <laughs> you know <laughs> I had to think of something real quick because I had a better word for it, more colorful word, but, um, you know, they're just entitled because they're who they are. And not all. I've met people, you know, like, you know, quick story. When I was, when I played at Studio C, there's, I don't know if you ever heard the band Cinder, who was uh, really, okay, so I was in Cinder and then uh, I went from Cinder to Skinner. So when I was in Cinder rehearsing at the studio, we had a little shack in the back. And the shack was where we'd play. There was no air conditioning. There was, it, was, it was so hot. I can't even, it was like Hell House for Skinner. It was just on edge, you know, on air conditioned and we'd sit in there for hours and write music and play it was really rock and roll you know it was really but to pay for it because we weren't playing gigs yet we had to unload the national acts and their trailers so they'd come pulling into the studio i remember unloading billy Powell's piano this is before i even knew anyone in skinner and it was me on one side and two my guitar player and bass player and other and this is a full grand piano in a, in a road case flight case so i'm walking out of the trailer with, and i'm i'm struggling man this thing's heavy i get i'm the only one on one end all of a sudden this long blonde haired guy comes up on a mountain trail bike that's it next to 
in the, the, the wheel of the trailer goes, hey, boy, I'll give you a hand, and jumps up next to me. So I'm like, hey, man, thanks. I'm thinking he's a roadie, you know? We're walking off, and he's like, what's your name? I'm like, oh, my name's Michael. He's like, I'm Johnny Van Zandt. I was that close to dropping the piano. <laughs> I was like, like, what? You know, like, that's humility. Like, even at that level, he was still willing to help unload their own gear. And you don't always find that. You find guys that really abuse their notoriety. They abuse the people around them. They go through managers constantly because some of them are uncontrollable, and some of them have a lifelong relationship. So, uh, again, choosing uh, choosing who represents you and that person having good qualities is huge. It's It makes the artist. You can't do it without one. It's impossible. I don't care how good you are. You can't run your own show. I mean, even James Brown, if you watch that story, his manager, James Brown, was a genius, an absolute genius on making money, but he couldn't do it without his manager, yeah. you know? A genius. I mean, he's the one that led the way for everything, for bands to actually make as much money as they make today. It's because of James Brown and what he thought of doing and promoting, and so, but he couldn't do it without his manager. And, uh, and that just goes to show, you know, it, it definitely takes two in this business, if you're an individual artist. So you played with Skinner and Blackfoot and the Van Zants. Were you sort of pigeonholed into that uh, sort of Southern rock thing for a while? Yeah. That was, yeah, was man. hard to break out of, or were you trapped in that? What did you do? You know, it's really funny, because I grew up on Ozzy and Crew and, you know, Dio and Sabbath and Maiden and Queensryche. And, you know, that's the kind of music I grew up on. And I'd be in my basement for hours with my music playing, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to be a rocker, you know? And I just kind of, when I met Ricky at the studio, I was definitely not open-minded as a musician, because I was so focused on metal that I didn't, you know, that's kind be my life. I'm going to be a rock and roll drummer. And, and then I, I got an appreciation for Southern rock because, you know, in my eyes, Ronnie Van Zant, there will never, ever be another Ronnie Van. He was an, it was like a prophet when he wrote, he was just, he wrote Simple Man in 13 minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, yeah, and right. so I got a new appreciation for music. And then my mind stretched out even more. You know, I was, I was starting to open myself. And that also helps your career. You can't be blinded and say, I'm just going to do this because if there's an opportunity to cut your teeth somewhere else, you do it. Because because it gets your name out there and it gets on your resume. You know, one of my best friends is Tony C. Coleman from B.B. Uh, King, his drummer. I've known Tony for years. And uh, Tony told me one thing that's just really funny, and it's about, you know, drummers especially. Um, he asked me, he said, you know, Mike, let me ask you a question. I said, what's that, Tony? He said, you ever get paid to do a drum solo? I said, no. He goes, neither did Charlie Watts, and he's the richest drummer in the world. Who cares? Just go up and play. Just go up and play. And Charlie Watts is one of his best friends. So when you when you, when you you think about it, you have to be open-minded. And I wasn't. You're absolutely right. I felt like in the beginning I was pitching. Oh my God, I'm in Southern Rock. Now I'm doing this. I'm Southern Rock here. But at the end of the day, it pays the bills. It expands your creativity because it's a whole other genre of music. So you got to you gotta keep up with that and you got to stay tight with it. Uh, when I did the Edge of Forever album, it was really funny because uh, for Skinner, um, Johnny came up to me as I was setting up my kit. He said, I want a lot of double bass in this album. I went, what? Like I was actually, I didn't want to do it because I didn't feel Southern Rock should have double bass. But when he opened the door for me, of course... I did a few few things here and there on some of the songs and Preacher Man and 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 uh, on the song Edge of Forever, which was written by Jim Federick of Survivor. Um, and yeah, we uh, you know it's it, I felt that, but I also learned a valuable lesson, and that is you have to keep yourself open, or you're not going to get work. You know, especially again like a hired gun. It's a great career being a hired gun because you get exposed to so many different aspects of the business, so many different genres. I've recorded in Nashville and had Boss Skaggs walk in in the middle of the recording and say, "Hey man, you want to do a song with me?" Okay, mm -hmm. like that. You know, I mean, that wouldn't have happened if I. Focused 
focus myself on, you know, uh, just metal or rock or alternative. I should become more of more of a, a value to people, you know? That's cool. Boz Skaggs has had some great drummers with him. Yeah, yeah. I was I was like, what? Yeah. And this was, this was actually in some, this studio, there's so many studios in Nashville. This was in a guy's basement and it was a full-blown, I mean, he had this place set up with a Pro Tools rig and I mean, it was amazing and the sound quality. It was for a young artist called Bobby Chet and I recorded, I don't know, eight songs in 10 hours with him and uh, it was his EP. But uh, yeah, Boss Skaggs walked in and I was like, oh my God, you really boss, like, you know, it's almost surreal sometimes that people just walk in and you meet them and you're like, what? But I wouldn't have done that again if I stayed on that path, that vision of just being a rocker, you know? And Al Nally, we had our fights, but as a manager, he made that clear to me. Don't think you're just going to play rock. And I've got, I played movie soundtracks and I've done it only because I've, you know, I've expanded myself. It wasn't closed-minded or had blinders on. So yeah, I, I, in the beginning, I absolutely felt like, I don't want you know Southern drummer. Look at me. Do I look like a Southern rock drummer? I'm not wearing no cowboy hat, you know? And then I put a cowboy hat on one day and I went, oh, it looks pretty good. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, you definitely have to be open to that. And I'm glad that happened. I'm very glad that happened. I am because I don't think I would have had as much, if any, success without branching out, you know? You gotta take what's available. And, you're, and, and Al would put things in front of me and Jeff already is, and again, there's your manager, you know, coinciding with the musician. I don't know what to look for out there. He does. And so he throws things out to me and offers things to me. You want to do this? You want to do that? This band's thinking about getting rid of their drummer. I'll get you set up for an audition. So, you know, look, if I can get into a band that's touring that dumps their drummer, I'm in. I don't mind. I, I don't care. I'll do it again. But it's definitely session work is, is uh, it hones your skills as a drummer. I'm sure you can understand that. It really does. It's important to be as best as you can to be. You can make a mistake live and the layman isn't going to hear it. And you can cover it. That's the difference between a pro and an amateur. Pro makes a mistake and you never know, right. you know. Uh, or, the you know, if you make a mistake on stage and the guitar player turns around and looks at you, you know, you, you know, you know, I definitely uh, think that keeping yourself open to many different things and listening to the people that you hire in your life, like your publicist or your, your manager, you gotta, the people that have been there before you know a lot more than you do. I knew nothing. Do you negotiate your own fees? I do. I, I got for, for session work, it's, it's standard. Right. It's like, it's, you know, it's like a hundred bucks an hour, three, three hour minimum, right. you know, and you just got, and plus if I got to fly out, they'll pay for the flight and a hotel if I'm staying the night, right. you know, things like that, a little per diem. Right. Uh, it's not over, overkill. I'm, you know, I'm sure Kenny's getting immensely more than that, but then that's where the name comes from. You know, you build yourself to that level, the industry standard somewhere around a hundred bucks an hour. And that's what I do. I just love playing drums, man. It was, it's, it was never even about the money. Only. Now when you go out on tour, you do, you negotiate yourself? Oh yeah. Then I negotiate. Yeah. Negotiate per diem and, and what my salary is. For, and you know, again, I consider myself a nobody. I'm just a drummer, but I've done this a long time and I've, I've earned it. You know, I've played with some of the best. I've earned it. I'm mm -hmm. certainly, uh, I try to be as humble as I can be. I could always be a better drummer. There's millions of drummers better than I am out there. Millions. But I got my own niche. I got my thing that I do when I play and it attracts people. So good. I make money on it. You know, you yeah. can't be a clone because if you're a clone, they'll take the other guy because he's got a name. You don't. But it's also, it seems like you're a good guy to hang out with. Like if I'm going to go on the road for like 35 or 40 dates, right? somebody who can play, but I also want somebody who I'm willing to hang out with, you know, who's yeah. best well, hours, whether it's on a bus or just, just on stage or backstage, that's a lot of downtime. It's a lot of personal time. You know, you really only work 90 minutes a night. Yeah. Right. Besides getting showered, shaved and dressed, uh, you work, you know, maybe 120 hours, 120 minutes a night and you're done actual work you know my tech set everything up they sound check usually for us if it's a big enough band if it's a you know uh, let's say it's like a b circuit band but you're touring and you're out in an arena you go and you check your own you know instruments probably because you're in front of the head of the you know the you're in front of the, the headliner and you don't get as many lights you don't get the same monitor mix you know when you're a headliner you you get everything when you're opening act you get minimal things on stage because the last thing the headliner wants 
is for you to outshine them. Yeah, so yeah. they're not going to give you full production. <laughs> You're going to get maybe half if you're lucky. Um, so yeah, being personable and being able to, I guess, read people and be able to get along with people is very important. I mean, our buses would sleep 12 feet. Plus we had a living room, plus a kitchen, plus the stateroom in the back. So you think all that on a bus and we filled it because, you know, Skinner has a tech bus. We did most of the bands I was with, we didn't have a tech bus. My drum tech and our security guard were in the bunk above me. And so yeah, you're a lot of time together, a lot of, uh, you have to be able to be a chameleon because there's a lot of different personalities on that bus. Some that you can appreciate and some you want to punch right in the throat. <laughs> but right. you can't because you're not going to get paid. <laughs> you know. Can you bring up uh, life on the bus? Uh, you mentioned they're in fun, the above you. The lower bunk is the better play bunk to sleep um, in. You know, it's really funny because with the new Air Ride Prevost bus, buses, they really are comfortable. But your, your bunk is, you know, what is it? Two feet tall by, you know, six feet long maybe. And my our security guard was 400 pounds and 6'9". Wow. So, I, yeah, Roy, but God, he passed away. God bless him, Roy. I took the wrong road. He just died. He just passed away recently. So he, uh, I, the best bunk, I, I wanted the top because I'm, I'm little, I'm short. So I was like, I think top bunk. So I jump up there and you, you, you have a little satellite TV that comes down and you can watch TV. Well, we were dead asleep and our bus driver hit this railroad track. And when it does that, the bus being, it's an air ride, really tips. And I fell, <laughs> fell right out of the bunk on the floor from the top. And Roy was about an inch from falling on top of me in the middle bunk. So we all decided at least for big people should be on the bottom bunk. So they don't fall on the little people if you fall out of your bunk. But yeah, the bus is a, it's a fun time, man. You really get close to people. You learn about their life. You write music. You watch movies. You, you know, there's an old rule of thumb. You only go number one on the bus, not number two. You stop at a pit stop if you got to go number two. You know, there's just little faux pas, but it's expensive. I mean, people don't even realize how much a bus costs. To run a bus for, uh, say, 60 shows, $1,000 a day to rent the bus, plus fuel, plus you got to pay the driver. And then every two days, the driver has to get his own room because he's got to get off the bus and get free of that atmosphere for psychological reasons i mean you're, you're just sitting in the in the front i mean but you know it's really cool and you get to know your bus driver like there's a seat next to the bus driver we call it the jump seat so if i couldn't sleep i'd get up i'd walk up to the front sit in the jump seat and chat with the driver there's also to make sure he didn't fall asleep but yeah it's a it's a very um it's a very bonding atmosphere there's a lot of love hate on on a bus and a lot of laughter and hazing i mean there's things we do to each other on the bus that we want <laughs> but we have fun you know i mean it's a good time man it's where you become a brotherhood you know i remember being in a van before a bus, no money, eating ketchup packs when I was like 19 years old, just to go to a show and make 50 bucks for the whole band because we were opening for some local yokel, you know, heroes that thought they were big time headliners. I mean, that's, you know, you got to go through that. And then you sort of, you appreciate the boss. The story behind Taylor Swift, I know, is that her dad uh, owned Swift Trucking. Taylor Swift's dad went to the record label with a million dollars in a briefcase and said, make my daughter a star. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't, you don't get, you don't get grounded and you don't get roots that way. You got to go through hell and the trials and tribulations and the, and the valleys and the peaks to really appreciate things in music. Um, you have to have a bad manager to appreciate a good manager. You have to you have to have a good drum tech to know the difference between a good and a bad one. You know, the drum tech for Skinner and Rod Gibson was absolute beast. My kit was so perfect every night. I, I mean, it was amazing. It was like I set it up myself, you know. Uh, professionals at their jobs get work in this industry. If you're not a professional, you will not get work. All of it has to be professional. The moment you walk out of your house, like I was saying before, you got to turn it on. You have to be that person. You have to be a professional. 
professional from the bus driver all the way down to the road manager to the stage manager. I remember playing House of Blues one night in Orlando with uh, Stain and we were opening up for Stain and my guitar player took some gaff tape and he put it over a cable on the deck and that deck was like, I don't know, 100 year old mahogany and the stage manager lost his mind. <laughs> don't you ever put tape on my deck? You know, we were just young bucks again. You know, we were like, oh. he was almost in tears, man. I mean, this guy ripped him open but you know, you take the beatings but I guarantee you that my old guitar player Chris will never put tape on a deck again, ever, you know? <laughs> it's a tough industry. It's tough everywhere. Every moment is tough from backstage to, you know, hashing things out with your manager to uh, trying to live a normal life when you're not on stage. You know, when we'd go out to dinner with Jimmy in Nashville, it was like an onslaught of people every time because uh, Jimmy's very recognizable. He is the classic looking Van Zandt, you know? They all have that smile. They all have those eyes. It's a Van Zandt thing. And you can <laughs> even go out to dinner. I mean, at times it's rough. I, again, I wouldn't trade an, an instant of it. I mean, everything's out there, alcohol, drugs, women. It's up to you to turn it away or it's up to you to embrace it. Uh, the ones that embrace it are no longer with us, most of them. And they were really talented people. It's a shame. Um, but by the grace of God, there go I. You know, you keep your head straight and you get in this business and you do it and you choose the proper people to represent you. You've got to. We have some people in our program who are uh, relatively excellent drummers. We have a really high-end jazz program and then we have a lot of people who are just excellent drummers. That's one type of music I never could do, man, jazz. I don't know why. I just, I try. I got the basic jazz groove down, but jazz drummers are a breed of their own and they are bad for the bone. Yeah, good yeah they are. Drummers, man. So for any drummer, let's say uh, he or she is getting out of college or getting out of high school and just really wants to do a lot of the things that you did, what would you say for them if they want to be a, I know one guy in particular who is just a monster drummer, but he wants to be a studio guy. He really doesn't want to live the life and do the road. What are some suggestions you would give to them to get into your field? First thing, get a manager. You can't do it. You can't represent yourself because you don't know the ropes. Get a manager who's experienced, a manager that knows the business, that knows people. The first day I talk with Jeff that night, he called me with a session in Nashville. That's proof. That's that's good stuff. That's really good stuff. You have to definitely, um, if you're going to focus on session work alone, make sure that you're qualified to do session work because you make sure you know how to read, make sure you know how to listen, play to a click track, make sure you know how to vibe with someone you've never played with. I mean, again, there's the chameleon aspect. Being a hired gun, you really have to be a chameleon. You've got, I've, I've played with horrible bass players that I, I really had a struggle with to vibe with. And I played with people like Leon Wilkerson from Skinner that just blew me away. And he's so underrated. He was so good. If you listen to some of the Skinner tunes and listen to his bass runs, Leon was amazing. But, you know, um, that definite, you definitely have to be a master of your craft and go in confident. A lot of fluffing, talking yourself up, get in, just get it, you know, a manager gets you in the door, you're you're on stage. You got to do the rest. Now, that's what your manager does for you. They get you the meeting, they get you whatever it is, and then you got to show or you're not going to, you know, your name will be blacklist. I have a friend of mine and I'll leave this nameless. He won a very large drum competition uh, back in 2000 something. I won't even give the year because it'll give him away. And he um, he was young, young guy and absolute monster player, monster. So immediately, of course, you get notoriety, right? So now if somebody, somebody sees him, he wins this, all the, all the uh, endorsements are coming in and then a the manager comes in and next thing you know, he's on the road with Justin Timberlake. And then he fell into the drinking and the drugs and he went out with Britney Spears and he started to be late for rehearsals because he was hung over. And again, being a professional all the time, Britney Spears said, you're late. And he came in with a cocky attitude. Well, you need me more than I need you. On the spot, she fired him. And he's been blacklisted to this day. It just takes one one person of that stature. And you know, I mean, Britney Spears is Britney Spears. I don't care if you like her or not. You know, she's a star. And she's got some pull. And he's blacklisted now. Now, he still plays with another band that I go see frequently. Uh, it's a tribute act. And they are amazing. And I love watching him play. And I get up and he'll ask 
asked me to come up and play a song and, and we're really good friends but it just goes to show you if you're not ready for this industry and you really don't investigate things you have to look into things well, what do i got to do if i you know if i have to cut a track do i need to do it learn to click track do i you know you better be playing to a metronome these are all things they're going to want from you you have to know your business before you get into it they're not going to call, call a plumber to pull your teeth they're going to call a dentist right so they want a drummer to come in and lay a track and they want a drummer that can read they want to draw if necessary or a drummer that can play off the cuff or a drummer that can play live without jumping up four beats in front if they tell you mike take this one and lay it back a little behind the one lay it back behind the one you got to learn to do that so really investigating and, and and knowing your craft and your is the first thing you need to do and if that's sessions where he wants to go it's a great career because you can have a family you know you can actually go do a few sessions and come home and have a family and make money to survive but um definitely hone your craft get a manager that can get you into places and that you uh have faith in and then move forward with it but it can be done i mean any part of it can be done if you can play drums but you have to know you know you can't sit behind a drum set live and not put on a show no one wants to see a mannequin back there you got to have your own niche you have to get your, your thing whether it be slipknots joey with a mask on or you got to have your thing you know otherwise you're just like everybody else and why should i sign you what, what makes you different you know um what makes you a different session drummer well kenny aronoff is like a human metronome the guy's perfect and i never played with a metronome so when i get into the studio in florida my engineer made me play with one and i swore him up and down i used to kick cymbals over and have little hissy fits but i got to the point where i could be about a half a beat in front or behind without a click and it's because of him so you have to kind of also step into things that you're not familiar with and not comfortable with and be able to do it that's a big deal you have to be able to be uncomfortable and play through you know it's not always comfortable the rough business <laughs> yeah yeah christine we have about two minutes left and you've uh we've taken up all the time with our questions so, uh, a, key, a key question that you want to ask michael before we end this yeah i'm sorry jeff is probably on the phone i'm sorry about that but it's, it's a manager you know yeah. always looking out for their artists i just uh want to know that moving forward in the, the live part of the industry how covid and everything else that's going on how do you feel that's gonna what changes are going to be made to the music industry based on where we're you at know, now being a nurse and i'm dealing with it i now work with all covid positive patients where i work and it's uh it's almost becoming the norm you know i used to watch like the news and see china with masks on and be like look at these weirdos well that just might be our norm sooner or later because people don't really realize the severity of this this is very severe people are dying a lot i've seen more people in the last three months that i've been dealing with this in the front of the lines die than i have in 10 years of myself being a nurse i think the whole industry is going to change in some way they're doing a lot of this uh, live music or live concerts online kind of a cool idea kind of like pay-per-view uh that might come into play a lot now uh, until this really gets can, under control you know i don't know what it's going to take for us to control this horrible virus Rhonda, our mutual friend in texas you now texas opened up like a month ago and now their numbers are soaring they opened because the numbers were low so they thought oh it's all gone you know this thing's outside doing push-ups just waiting for us mm -hmm. To be idiots, you know, and then come right back in again. It's happening in Florida. So uh, I definitely think that uh, pay-per-view kind of concerts might be um, might be something of the future if this doesn't get you know solved because the industry's got to kick back in sometime. You know, people make a lot of money, but eventually they got to keep making money. That's why bands that you hear of retiring, this is the final farewell tour, go back out on the road because they run out of dough. You know, you get used to a lifestyle, and if you're not out playing, that money will go fast because you're still living the lifestyle as though you're playing and you have 
having an income. Yeah. So I think a pay-per-view thing is a definite. I think it's a smart thing to do too. It keeps people safe, keeps people from uh, being all over on top of each other. Concerts, you know, you've all been to a concert. They're insane. I mean, when I was a kid, I was like, I want to be on that stage. When I saw Queensryche and Iron Maiden in Long Island at Nassau Coliseum, and I was like third row, and I turned around and I looked and I said, one day I'm going to be up on that stage to myself and I'm going to see what it's like. And then when I played Castle Donington in front of 180,000 people, I saw what it was like. And yeah, so it's insanity. And that does not, it's not very congruent with this virus. I'm a full believer in, in social distancing and that six foot rule. I'm all about that because I, you know, when I can smell what you had for breakfast over my shoulder when I'm paying for my food, you got to back up, my man. <laughs> You're way too close, you know? I've always felt like that anyway. But the industry, everything's going to change. This world is going to change. Um, I don't know what else the industry can do, but I do know that that pay-per-view idea is, is, is happening um, now. Bands are doing that. I think that might be what's going to happen. Look, uh, records and CDs stop because of the internet. Why wouldn't live shows? You know, I mean, unfortunately, the internet, what a great tool, but also it was a killer of income. You know, bands nowadays, uh, labels nowadays, back in the day, they would take somebody who had just a little bit of talent and they would ruin you. They would develop you. They would take time and make you a band. Nowadays, you got to be selling product. You got to be having a draw. You got to have a look. You got to have your know, merch. And then they might give you a distribution deal if you're lucky. They're not signing bands and pruning them anymore. The industry is completely changed. And this is going to put another cog in the wheel. And uh, But I've, I'm a firm believer. I think that a pay-per-view thing is definitely going to be something we see in the near future because, like I said, the money's going to start running out. I don't care who you are. Unless you're Sir Paul McCartney, there isn't too many people with that amount of wealth in the industry. People have to, have to make money. I think it's a great idea because it keeps keeps it still keeps it fresh yeah it still keeps music in people's lives because music is without a doubt the best medicine ever and that's coming from a nurse the best um and uh, so i think that's one of the big things they're going to do i would hope to see that too because a lot of bands that you know i miss seeing that i would i'd pay to see you know on a tv why not i'm at home well, you know? uh, i watched a webinar that was talking about that exact thing they were doing a survey and they found out that 20 percent of the people that they surveyed are willing to pay for a live event but when the proceeds go to something like COVID or some other thing, mostly COVID, it's up to 50%. Sure. So I, I think that's gonna that's probably gonna last sure. for now for I, a while. I, I think this COVID thing has not only separated us, but I thought it, I think it's sort of kind of brought us together like that because it's a common cause to fight. You know, right. it's not color related, it's not religion related, it's not any it's it affects human beings. And so I think unfortunately that riot stuff happened, which was horrible. This is kind of something that brings people together for a common fight, common cause. It would definitely behoove musicians. I always love that word, behoove. It sounds like I'm actually super educated. <laughs> it would it would it would benefit a, musicians and bands to do this and put money towards the COVID thing so that we can have a better look upon the virus we can have a better uh, knowledge of it and then maybe maybe contain it and then go back to doing our you know uh, our regular concerts but I, I have no problem with sitting in my living room comfortable in my drawers with a bottle of water watching you know uh, Slipknot do a concert I'm cool with that you know I mean listen Music is music, and uh, whether it's on a radio, you listen to them all day on, on your stereo or on Pandora, you listen to them on, 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 on blah, wherever, um, why not watch them on TV and actually see them doing a show? I've watched concerts, you know, with old Zeppelin and all that stuff before. Why not? I think it's a good idea, and it keeps well, us separated. <laughs> well, I think it was a good idea having you on the show today. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. I'm very blessed. I'm honored. Thank you. We were. This is, this is great. Right, Marconi, you agree? Yes, we're <laughs> happy for you.
We are clapping for you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you. Christine, thank you for bringing Michael on with us. We appreciate thank it. Thank you, Christine, for reaching out. That's awesome. Thank you. And then the next time, God willing, we get some concerts around here, I'll take you backstage to one of the shows. It's, it's kind of weird now. I can't even I can't even watch a concert out in the front anymore. It's so bizarre. It's like if I don't get backstage passes, I don't go. It's yeah. it's very bizarre. They'll call it entitlement or yeah. whatever. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's a, I, I go to watch the musicianship. You know, I watch the musicians, but I watch the drummer and the bass player interact. I'm just not listening to the song. You know, maybe I'm a different breed like that where the average layman just wants to see people shred on stage and, and play music and listen to their favorite song. That's my jam. You know, I want to see what they do. I always look and I, I learn. I pick things up, what they're doing on stage. How did he set that up and why? What has he got on that? You know, so yeah, good stuff, man. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, this was great stuff. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, Christine. Dr. Esteban, what do we say at the end of every show? That's right. We say adios. So at the count of three, all of us say either I'll be the shade or I'll be the adios, but I prefer adios. One, two, three. Adios. <laughs>